This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So when you think about Mississippi marine life, sharks might not come to mind. But for our guest this morning, Dr. Marcus Dryman, it's been his focus of study for quite some time. So this morning, we'll talk about some of the common sharks in Mississippi waters, their importance in the ecosystem, and why all sharks shouldn't be considered jaws. As always, Dr. Major will be here for your pet questions, although traffic is holding him up a little bit and he's not made it into the studio, uh, but we hope he'll be here soon. You can join the conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at six. So good morning. Hope that you're both doing well this morning. Good morning. Great to be here. Yeah, doing good. Uh, Libby, you have some events that you want to talk I about. Do. There's a lot going on outdoors, unfortunately. With all the rain, I know it's been keeping people, or too many people have been outside unintentionally. And I know the flood is continuing, and uh, my heart goes out to everybody who's been really discomforted and hurt by all the water, and it's still happening south of town. But um, Strawberry Plains up in Oxford is um, doing a lot. So this Saturday is an event that I was really hoping to make it up for, Um Woodcocks and wine. It's really the best way to bird, don't you think? But and, uh, you hear and see these birds in the evening, and if you are lucky enough to get to see their mating ritual and the wild dance that the male woodcocks do, it's going to really be worth it. So if you can get up there, uh, uh, get online and make a reservation. It starts at 4.30 on Saturday afternoon, and um should be a lot of fun. And then that following Wednesday, they'll have an invasive removal work day. So if you want to pay them back for having a great time that night, uh, go out and help them pull privet. And it's a way to get all your frustration and anxiety out, I guess, because you'll be doing some hard work. And then the next Saturday, they're going to have a grasslands birding and winter sparrows workshop. And then, um, gosh, the week after that is winter tree ID. So if you're interested in getting involved in any of this stuff, it'd be a good idea to go ahead and just Google Starberry Plains Audubon Center and put your name on any of these events you want to attend. Uh, and as Libby mentioned, you know, I think a lot of us uh, that are have been safe from the uh, flooding in central Mississippi, the, particularly the Jackson metro area, uh, hearts go out to those that have suffered and are continuing to suffer. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a, an animal show. And, and so I would think that we, you know, the humans weren't the only ones that were displaced and had a rough time of this. Uh, images of, of deers in neighborhoods and neighborhoods and, and swans and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah. it's been it's been rough for us all. And um you know the rain. It's flooding and flash flooding are both of concerns, and it just it just seems like the rain is is not going to stop. So uh, we'll hope for better, drier weather uh, as we go along. And again, hope that everyone uh, <clears throat> is recovering well from yeah. any calamities that were caused by the by the flooding. And again, as you mentioned, Libby, it's still concern for for folks downstream here in Mississippi as well. Yeah, I had a first call of um, yesterday 
was somebody with four baby otters that had lost their mother and we did have a rehabber that took them in. That's a hard job rehabbing little otters too. Uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Major uh, is uh, delayed a little bit in traffic, so we hope that he'll be here before the hour is over. So if you have a pet question, if you could hold that till he gets here. In the meantime, though, we'll introduce again our guest. It's uh, Dr. Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. Dr. Dryman, thanks for joining us this morning. It's your first visit uh, with us on the show, so if you would give us a little bit uh, about your background. Absolutely, and thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So. I am from central Kentucky. Uh, I grew up uh, in Kentucky and fell in love with the ocean at a very early age. Um, and through a series of events through college and graduate school, just have had the fortune to keep on working with these creatures that I've been really fascinated by, sharks in particular. Um, but I've been down here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast now for uh, 15 years, so quite a while. And um, during that time, I've worked with NOAA Fisheries. I've worked with the Dolphin Island Sea Lab, the University of South Alabama, but now I'm very pleased to be a part of the faculty at Mississippi State University and a fisheries specialist for Mississippi Alabama Sea Grant. So um, I'm in a really good place right now. Uh, so uh, living in Kentucky, landlocked, and, and being a, a fan of the ocean, that, that must have been difficult, but I guess maybe when you had the opportunity, you were able to get, get to some water. Absolutely. So my dad was an airline pilot, um, oh. and so we had the opportunity to travel a lot of places, and my dad and I went diving a lot. And honestly, uh, that was what kind of opened my eyes to the, the underwater world, so to speak. So that that created a yearning and a bug in me at a very early age that has um, still not been quenched. So yeah, so again, uh, one of the reasons why we're very fortunate here in Mississippi to live just a couple of hours away from uh, the Gulf of Mexico, which I don't know, it's not quite the ocean, but I guess close enough, that's for sure. Uh, so you recently were awarded the 2019 Fisheries Conservationist of the Year by the Mississippi Wildlife Federation. If you would uh, tell us about the work that you did that, that uh, you were recognized for with that award. Sure, absolutely. So what a humbling um, award, what a humbling honor that was to receive that. And um, I just I regret that it's not a group award because really um, this award was the culmination of the work that my team does down with me at the Coastal Research and Extension Center, in particular, Amanda and Emily and Matt. And uh, the three of those folks work very, very hard. And together as a team, we were able to do a lot of interesting work in 2019 across a variety of species. So really, this award speaks very loudly to the quality of the work that those three folks have done. Uh, where on the coast are you uh, are you situated? So we are in Biloxi, uh, which puts us right on the water. We have a beautiful facility there, the Coastal Research and Extension Center. And I share that space with horticulturalists and coastal conservation restoration folks. And then, of course, our fisheries program and forestry folks and, and the like. But it's the way that Mississippi State University is able to expand its reach to all the areas of the state of Mississippi. We're going to be visiting throughout the hour with Dr. Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium, primarily talking uh, today about sharks. If you have a question for Dr. Dryman or if you have uh, a brush with wildlife that you'd like to share with us, you can give us a call. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So before we take our first break, you're also going to be the guest lecturer at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science on March 3rd, and your title of your talk is The Gulf of Mexico Fisheries Through Time, Modern Approaches for Tracking Ancient Fishes. If you would, give us a little bit of a preview of what your lecture will be about. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, the lecture really highlights the fact that the Gulf of Mexico is this absolutely incredible part of the Atlantic Ocean. And so we talk about what fisheries look like in the early Gulf of Mexico, and we use two different groups of fishes to illustrate these examples. We'll talk about tarpon, which are a really classic and culturally relevant fish. And then, of course, we'll talk about sharks. So we'll talk about the the burgeoning of those fisheries from an early stage, but then we'll talk about some of the work that we've been doing over the past three or four years using modern techniques like satellite telemetry to be able to inform us about the movements and habitat use of those different species groups. All right, so let's take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Dr. Marcus Dryman, and we're going to be talking primarily about sharks this morning. If you'd like to join our conversation with a phone call, just call one eight seven seven mpb ring The phone number is one 672 You can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Got a couple of calls to get to. We'll get to that and continue our conversation after this break, so stay tuned. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guests for the hour, Dr. Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University, our uh, expert for the hour on the sharks that we have here in Mississippi. Uh, you can join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672-7464. Email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. Dr. Major has made it in as well, so if you have a pet question, you can go ahead and call in and see if we can get an answer for you on that. We've got some calls to get to, so let's start by first going to Todd, who's called in from Brookhaven this morning. Go ahead, Todd. You're on the air with us. Uh, my question for Dr. Dryman is about bull sharks and uh, if they've been seen or how far they've been seen up the Mississippi River and if they've been seen at all in the lower Pearl River. And I'll take my answer off the air. All right, Todd, uh, thanks for giving us a call this morning. Todd, that's a great question. And bull sharks are one of the most fascinating fish we have in this part of the world, in the northern Gulf of Mexico for sure. The short answer is yes, we do see them up in, in the reaches of freshwater rivers. Um, we haven't tracked them that far up in the Pearl River, but we have been using a new technique. Myself and a colleague at the University of Southern Mississippi, Dr. Phillips, have used a technique called environmental DNA, which simply allows us to take a sample of the water and look for tiny, minute traces of DNA that a shark would have left in that water column. So by doing that, we've gone all the way up to the northern reaches of some rivers in Mississippi and Alabama up until they meet uh, a dam, a physical barrier. And some of the interesting things that we've been finding is that, yes, it is not unusual to see small little bull sharks all the way that far up in the northern reaches of those rivers. So a really amazing species and of course a very good question it's the same question we had ourselves all right uh let's press on next we've got our friend lee from woodville good morning lee go ahead good morning i'd like to ask uh, dr Dryman two things one is um how close does he work with dr george phillips with the paleontology and secondly i'd like to know 
I think they did a show once about Chunky, the Leaf Rivers. How often does it come up where there are prehistoric teeth or fossils or chalk bones from the past that tied in with what he's studying today? And I'll hang up and let him answer that. All right. Thanks, Lee, for your call. Lee, those are really great questions, and to be clear, this part of the world is also a really good place to find fossil shark remains. Now, specifically, since sharks are made up entirely of cartilage and don't have bones like other vertebrates, they leave behind mostly their teeth, but from their teeth, we can reconstruct a lot of their kind of evolutionary history. And this part of the world, Mississippi and Alabama in particular, have a really, really great fossil record. And I'd love to be able to show you some of the fossil teeth that we've collected from various sites around the state. Uh, But it really makes you wonder what those fossil shark populations looked like, you know, thousands or even uh, tens of thousands of years ago. All right. Uh, We're visiting today with Dr. Marcus Dryman, and we're going to be talking about the sharks that are found in Mississippi waters, uh, both in the Gulf of Mexico, and as he just told us, some of them in some of the rivers here in the state as well. It's been a busy day on the phone lines, but we've got some open phone lines for you. So call in at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And I might just remind Lee that the Fossil Road Show is March the 7th at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And George Phillips, who I think is his buddy now, they they talk a lot on the radio. And uh, George will have a lot of um, fossil shark teeth to see that day, I'm sure. All right. The more phone calls we have, the less you hear from me, and that's always a good thing. So let's press on next. We've got our friend Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Go ahead. Good morning. I'd like to ask, uh, have the oceans over the millennia or over the millions of years, have they become more salty or, or less saline? Because you'd think after all the millions of years, after runoff and everything, that there would be more saline. The oceans have been more, more saline now than they were in ancient times. Um, Miss Sue, that's a very good question, and it's a complicated answer. So over millions of years of evolution, uh, the oceans kind of reached an equilibrium with respect to the amount of salt in them. Uh, That said, the extent of the oceans has changed. So they've come inland, they've migrated seaward. Um, and so the the aerial extent, the volume of the oceans has changed dramatically um, over the past several million years. But the salinity or the average um, salt content of the water has remained somewhat equal. There's a big buffering capacity for the ocean. So that's been somewhat constant over time. And, and I'm often, how is it that, that fish like salmon can tolerate fresh and salty water and some most species can't? So that's a really good question. Uh, It's their amazing physiology. So it's very, very unique mechanisms internally that these fish have, things like salmon that are absolutely able to tolerate salt water and fresh water, or species like the bull shark that we talked about a moment ago that can go from totally salty water to absolutely fresh water. And it's some really intricate mechanisms that they have physiologically in the way that they deal with those changes in salts. Um, but I agree with you. It's pretty fascinating. Thank you. 
All right, Sue, always good to hear from you. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring The phone number is one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Word from John from Madison who wanted to know if sharks have uh, eggs or is it a live birth uh, for reproduction? Wow. So um, we could spend an entire semester talking about that. That's such a great question. Let's say there's roughly about 500 species of sharks. Uh, About 40% of those are strictly egg layers. They lay an egg just like a chicken does or like a snake does. Um, Maybe 10% of those 500 or so have a very live birth uh, situation just like a mammal would with a placental connection and basically an umbilical cord. And then that group that's not accounted for is somewhere in between. They have a mix of of straight egg laying and live birth. That's really fascinating when you look at the details. But the short answer is reproduction in sharks um, is one of the things that make them such an interesting animal group and their reproduction is simply all over the place. All right. So when we talk about the Gulf of Mexico, how would you describe the shark population? Is it is it healthy? Uh, Amazing is how I would describe it. Healthy, yes, um, both of those. So I'm really fortunate to be able to study sharks here in the Gulf of Mexico. We have a high diversity of sharks and populations of sharks in the Gulf of Mexico are starting to recover from what has been historical overfishing and habitat loss. So it's a good time to be a shark in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's a good time to be a person studying sharks in the area. If you would tell us about some of the different kinds of sharks that can be found in the Gulf. Sure, absolutely. Um, the most common shark you would find in the Gulf of Mexico is called the Atlantic sharp nose shark. This shark is about three feet long. The females get a little bit uh, bigger than the males. But if you've ever been fishing along our coast and you've caught a shark, it's likely that this was probably the shark that you caught. Uh, when they're small, they have little black edges along their fins, and so a lot of people will call them baby black tips. Um, but the truth is it's it's a very, very common shark that you're likely to see all times of the year um, and in all sorts of different habitats. But it's a really interesting creature. They segregate by sex, so the females are often in totally different places than the males. And another interesting thing about that fish is that they have very – so they give live birth, um, but these live – these pups, when they're born, tend to be born offshore, uh, which is interesting if you think about the safety of a very small newly born shark in the offshore waters. It's a really interesting strategy, but – definitely the most common shark we have in the area. All right. Uh, we've got another caller on the line, and this time we'll say good morning to Lynn, who's called in from Moss Point. Go ahead, Lynn. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I have a science question, and I'll hang up and listen to your answer. And uh, that is, uh, in your dealings with scientists around the world as you study, um, how many scientists do you encounter who believe in the creation theory of the world being created in seven days um just would like to know how often you run into people like that have a good day thanks for your call lynn sure lynn um so i live in van Cleef, so not too four neighbors essentially but um that's a great question and the answer is uh science folks can be kind of finicky when it comes to uh 
the dichotomy or the supposed dichotomy between creation and evolution. And as someone, as a scientist myself, someone who's thought about that issue at length and for several years, I've come to the determination that there is no conflict there. So um, in my personal, you know, this is a personal statement, um, I'm very comfortable being a Christian and believing in creation and things like that, but I am also um, a very hardcore scientist down to my inner being. Um, so I think it's just one of those issues that, you know, of course it's going to be different for everybody you ask, but uh, it is something that certainly is is a common question that scientists get um, when they're around other scientists. Today on Creature Comforts, we're visiting with Dr. Marcus Dryman. He's an assistant professor at Mississippi State University, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium, uh, a recipient of the 2019 Fisheries Conservationist of the Year by the Wildlife Federation, uh, and he's our shark expert for today. So we have some open phone lines. If you'd like to join our conversation with a question or a comment, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Marcus, you were talking about uh, the most common shark in the Gulf of Mexico. What are some of the other sharks that we would find there? So, <clears throat> the Atlantic sharp nose shark is the most common. Another really common shark is the black tip shark. Uh, that's a species that gets a fair bit bigger than the sharp nose. We also have species like black nose sharks, spinner sharks, fine tooth sharks. And then we get into more of the species that people are probably familiar with bull sharks, tiger sharks, um, two large species of hammerhead, both the great hammerhead and the scalloped hammerhead. And then, you know, there are a plethora of smaller body, deeper um, water sharks that are a little bit less common, um, but probably. Um, more abundant than we know, simply because we lack the ability to be able to sample them very easily. Uh, what about the shark's role in the ecosystem of the Gulf? Right. So when you think about a shark and the role it plays with respect to its ecosystem, it's essentially the same role that a lion would play in the central Saharan plains. Um, you know, they, they regulate ecosystems. They keep ecosystems healthy. Um, they, they are an important piece of an ecosystem puzzle. And so just how any puzzle is not complete without all its pieces, you know, an ecosystem that doesn't have sharks is very much a, um, an incomplete ecosystem. And moreover, they do a good job of regulating prey. So all of the things that sharks eat, um, those prey populations are kept healthy by the fact that there are sharks in those roles. So would you say they're near the top of the food chain? Well, that, that's a really great question, and some of them certainly are. Some of them are what we consider to be apex predators, the very, very top of the food chain. But what a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that the vast majority of sharks are what we would consider mesopredators, not apex predators, but mesopredators. So essentially filling the same role as other large fish or other predators, not necessarily the very top, but somewhere in the middle or between the middle and the top. All right. What about uh, fishing for sharks? Is that is that allowed in the Gulf? Oh, absolutely. And um, in our part of the world here in Mississippi and then even in Alabama and Louisiana, recreational fishing for sharks uh, certainly happens. But in places like Texas, and Florida and the Gulf Coast of those states, it's a very, very popular pastime. So recreational fishing for sharks can be a lot of fun. Uh, it's a fish that puts up a great fight. And there's a lot of folks in the world that are like me and just want to get their eyeballs on a shark. And so recreational fishing for them is a great way to do that. All right. Uh, what about uh, can we eat sharks? 
So, yes, a lot of people will recreationally fish for sharks just for the thrill of catching one and releasing one. But, of course, sharks are a resource just like any other commodity, like any other natural resource in the Gulf of Mexico. And as such, they can be eaten. So just like we eat flounder and red snapper and red rum, you can certainly eat um, almost every type of shark you would encounter. Now, preparing that fish to eat takes a few additional steps and is a little bit more complicated and just culturally we don't tend to think about sharks as something that we eat, but certainly in other parts of the world, sharks are staples of, of diet with respect to food and uh, fish that, that people eat. Um, but yeah, I've spent a lot of my life eating sharks, and I highly recommend it. So if you could, I mean, it tastes like chicken is usually the common response we get. But, you know, if, for people that might be familiar with some other kind of seafood and that sort of thing, how would you describe the taste of shark? Yeah. Well, so if you're used to eating very mild fish, if you like flounder, if you like um, speckled trout, uh, smaller redfish, things like that, shark is going to be a little bit of a stronger taste. And the flesh is going to be a little bit thicker um, and and denser, if you will. So a lot of people will eat something like a tuna or a swordfish and describe it as having a steaky quality, more of a meaty quality. That will be the same case um, with a shark. But of course, that will depend on the size of the shark and how the shark is treated. Now, the smaller, generally speaking, the smaller the shark, uh, the more delicate the flesh is. But treated the right way, shark is a very, very tasty fish. And um, I would certainly recommend that if you see it on your local menu, you go ahead and give it a try. All right. Uh, we need to take another break. We're having a fascinating discussion with our guest, Dr. Marcus Dryman. He's an assistant professor at Mississippi State University, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. We're talking about the sharks that you can find in Mississippi waters. Uh, we're going to take a break, but still time for you to call in because our phone lines are open. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. And as the theme from Jaws plays on, we'll be back with more after this break, so stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour is Marcus Dryman, assistant professor at Mississippi State University, member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. We've been talking about sharks found in Mississippi waters today. Again, got some open phone lines, so if you'd like to join the conversation, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Dr. Major here, ready for your pet questions. And again, we always like to hear your brushes with wildlife. So if you've had an encounter here recently that you'd like to share with us, you can call as well. Open phone line, so uh, go ahead and call in if you'd like to join in this morning. Uh, so, Marcus, um, with you talked about all these sharks that are in the Gulf of Mexico. People like to swim in the Gulf of Mexico. Is there... 
are there a lot of interactions? I mean, I guess when something happens, it tends to make the news, but you would think it's kind of like an, an airplane crash where how many times do flights go where nothing happens, but it's news when something happens. So talk about swimming in the Gulf of Mexico with all those sharks. So that's a really great way of putting it. You know, people fly on planes, you know, every single day, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Yet and still, when a plane crashes, it is a real tragedy. And so, of course, you hear about it. But I think the easiest way for me to explain it is that I am very comfortable with my three children swimming in the Gulf of Mexico. I love swimming in the Gulf of Mexico. I highly encourage it. I think it's um, one of the great things about living in this part of the world. Uh, But the truth is, you've likely not ever been in the Gulf of Mexico when a shark doesn't realize that you're there. So I like to illustrate that point because... You're in the water. The shark realizes you're there, but the vast majority of the folks listening probably have never been bitten by a shark. Um, And that just goes to show that the shark knows you're there. It has an incredible sensory capacity to be able to tell you're there through a variety of senses. It's just simply not interested in biting you. So it's the old um, idea that these instances, these very, very rare instances when someone gets bitten by a shark tends to just be um, a case of mistaken identity. I'm curious, though, if you would follow up on which of the senses I could imagine maybe smell, uh, vibrations in the water. What are some of the the ways that they can tell that we're in there with them? Exactly. Smell um, is definitely the biggest one. They have an extraordinarily acute sense of smell. And it's not just attuned to blood. It's attuned to different fish slimes and, and all sorts of olfactory cues. Um, But also, like you mentioned, just movement in the water. So um, just by moving in the water, you're displacing water away from you. Um, And if you can imagine that sort of invisible wave of water moving through the water, a shark feels that as a pressure gradient. And so it, it can use those pressure gradient cues to be able to know where various things are. But they also have senses that we truly can't understand, like or that we truly can't relate to. We can understand them. We can't relate to them. Um, and specifically, I'm talking about their sense of electromagnetism. So the fact that they have an electrosensory capability, so much so that they can detect minute little electrical fields, uh, the beating of any muscles, that when a muscle contracts, it emits a weak electrical field and a shark can sense that with something called the ampullae of Lorenzini. So it uses those senses and a host of other ones in concert to be able to identify what's around it and its surroundings. And so not only to say, hey, that's a human over there, but it also might say, hey, that's one of those fish that I'd like to eat. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, a lot of times humans and the fish that sharks like to eat are in the same space. Um, And so that constitutes one of those examples where there may be some mistaken identity or a shark lunges to to put its mouth on a small bait fish but you know a human happened to be right there and and again those are exceedingly rare cases um, and should be looked at as nothing to keep you from enjoying the waters of our gulf coast all right back to the phone lines we go we've got jerry on the line from madison thanks for calling in jerry you're on the air with us so go ahead uh yes i'd like for you to address the uh concerns and issues about shark fin harvesting and if there if that is an issue in the gulf and if so how is it regulated and i'll hang up and listen to your response thank you thanks jerry sure jerry great question um and i'll start with some clarification so shark finning specifically refers to the practice of removing the fins of a shark while it's still alive at sea and discarding the body of the shark back into the ocean 
So this is, of course, a, a horrible practice. It's completely illegal and has been illegal for many, many years in the United States. And so there is a very clear law prohibiting shark finning in this country. And I'll say that the Gulf of Mexico and the United States has some, if not the very best, um, most sustainably managed shark fisheries in the world. Now, that said, it is perfectly legal to land a shark, a legally, you know, a shark that is not prohibited. A commercial fisherman can land that shark, sell the meat, and can also sell the fins as well. It would simply be wasteful to not use the entire body of the shark. So selling the fins from a legally harvested shark is regulated, and that is legal. Um, but the action, the process of shark finning is very much illegal. And when people are caught with shark fins on their boats, they receive very, very stiff penalties. All right. We're visiting today with Dr. Marcus Dryman. Uh, he is our guest and he is our shark expert on Creature Comforts this morning. Our phone lines are open. It's been very busy, but if you've been trying to get in, now is a good time. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number, it's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, Marcus, I've always heard that there are some guidelines and things to go by to kind of minimize interactions between humans and sharks. And one of them I remember is that the sharks like to, I think it's at uh, dawn and dusk is kind of when they're active. And so maybe avoid being in the water at those times. Are there, are there some other things that people enjoying the Gulf would keep in mind to maybe just minimize uh, chance encounters with a shark? Sure, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I'm most cognizant of myself um, has to do with fishing and spearfishing. I love spearfishing. I always have as a young kid and, and even still now as an adult. Once I spear one or two or three fish at a location, it's a good idea to then move locations because when you spear that fish, your you know your spear hits that fish and it's releasing scales. It's causing that fish to swim very erratically. The fish might be bleeding a little bit. All of those are cues for sharks to come check it out because they see that as an easy meal as they should. That's how they've evolved. But unfortunately, sometimes a shark will actually lunge for the fish that's at the end of your spear. And of course, that's typically a little bit too close for comfort for most of us. So my recommendation in that respect is if you enjoy f spear fishing, um, as I do, I would simply f spear a few fish, then move on to the next site. All right. Um, and I think you mentioned earlier that sharks don't really have uh, bones is, is that correct and so give us a little bit about maybe about shark physiology i guess yeah absolutely so sharks are fish right so let's say there's about twenty-seven thousand species of what we think of as bony fish your standard old bass or brim or red drum or, or red snapper there's about 1200 um, species of sharks and skates and rays so they're a separate group of fish and they're separated by these few defining characteristics. Mostly, first of all, they don't have any bones. That's why they're called cartilaginous fish. Um, they're made up entirely of cartilage. So that's one of the major things that separates a shark from a skate, or excuse me, from a, a bony fish like a red drum or a red snapper. Uh, they also don't have uh, a bony plate covering their gills. That's called an operculum. They don't have a swim bladder. Uh, if any of you listeners are fishermen, if you've ever caught a fish at depth and you brought it up and its stomach is protruding from the mouth because of the air bladder expansion, sharks will never have that problem because they don't have a swim bladder. So they have to compensate and maintain their buoyancy in other ways. Another interesting difference between sharks and bony fish is they have serial tooth replacement. 
So they have rows and rows of teeth in their mouth. Um, those teeth are very loosely embedded in the gums. When the shark takes a bite of something, uh, a tooth very well may fall out, um, and then it's very easily replaced. So over the course of the life of an individual shark, they can go through tens of thousands of teeth, which I always think is just absolutely fascinating. So does the the lack of the bones, does that help them in terms of their propulsion through the water? What maybe sort of advantages it gives them for having for being like that? It does. It, it, it confers some advantages. It gives them a, a different sort of st- stability structure. It does make them a bit more flexible, but it creates some problems. Um, there are things that sharks can't do necessarily that other bony fish can do um, with respect to swimming and propulsion. Uh, but not having that swim bladder is why most sharks have to continually swim in order to stay afloat. There are uh, several exceptions to that rule, but that creates a positive force that keeps the shark in an upward position. Uh, As well, they have a big liver that's filled with squalene, um, and that oil, that squalene in their liver has a very low density, and so that helps keep them afloat as well. So they have unique challenges, uh, being that they have these very stark differences with bony fish, uh, but that's part of the thing that makes them so unique. All right, let's go ahead. We're going to take one last break this hour. Uh, If you have a question for our guest, Dr. Marcus Dryman, if you have a pet question for Dr. Major or a brush with wildlife you'd like to share with us, we've got some open phone lines. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. When we get back, we'll dispel some shark myths. So stay tuned. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Medical Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today is Dr. Marcus Dryman. He's a member of the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium and assistant professor at Mississippi State University. We've been talking about sharks, a very fascinating discussion this morning, uh, and we still have time for you to join in at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So I think when we talk about shark myths, a lot of them might be uh, created by Hollywood. And certainly I think I'm, I hope that even younger generations have seen Jaws, uh, one of the classic, uh, I guess you'd call it a horror movie, but scary movie that Hollywood produced. Uh, so let's, uh, Marcus, if we could maybe dispel some shark myths. The first one, that sharks are man-eaters. So you really hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, That myth has been perpetuated, and of course it did start with the movie Jaws, and I think it's very notable to point out that the author of the book, Jaws, and you know the man who was uh, responsible for the movie, his name's Peter Benchley, he's gone on record as saying, had he realized 
the effect that 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 movie would have on global shark populations that he simply never would have written the book or participated in the movie. So he's gone on public speaking campaigns as an advocate for sharks, um, trying to point out that, of course, they are not man eaters. Um, that is a myth perpetuated by Hollywood. And it, it's a great movie. And I don't think anybody would argue that. Um, but it is just that it's a movie. It's uh, it's fiction. All right. Uh, sharks don't have predators. Well, sadly, uh, sharks' biggest predator um, right now are humans, um, whether it's through directed harvesting or incidental bycatch or habitat destruction or a, a myriad of other um, reasons. Shark populations now are nothing like they used to be hundreds of years ago. Uh, and really, the blame with that lies with us. But I will say uh, I'm encouraged because I think about my young kids um, and they're not they have a primal fear of sharks that I think is natural and good. But they don't have that same fear that maybe I did when I was their age, because they're raised now in a culture that understands the value of sharks and they're more fascinated with sharks than they are afraid of sharks. So human beings as predators of sharks, that's slowly reversing. We're starting to appreciate their importance and their role and I think we've already made some pretty good strides to that end. All right, another myth uh, that all sharks are massive. I guess there are some big ones, but not all of them. Yeah, so, I mean, to start off, the biggest fish in the world is a shark, the whale shark. And that is a massive fish that can be as long as a school bus. And we have those in the Gulf. We absolutely we? do have those in the Gulf. And they are phenomenal creatures. They look like a big, huge whale. Um, and they, they, of course, eat plankton. So there are very, very big sharks, the whale shark. We have other very large species in the Gulf, tiger sharks can be nearly 15 feet long and we catch them that big great hammerheads can be nearly 15 feet long and we see them routinely in the gulf of mexico bull sharks can be eight nine feet long um, there are lots and lots of big sharks great whites of course can be very very large but those are the minority so the vast majority of sharks really top out at about three to four feet long now, they're not the sexy sharks that we like to study and that we like to glamorize, but certainly the majority of sharks are very, very diminutive in stature. All right. Uh, let's end things with some phone calls and some emails. This first email says, how had the 2010 oil spill and the Bonnie Carey spillway opening impacted the shark populations? Did their reproductive and or migration habits change as a result? So that's a great question. Certainly the Deepwater Horizon oil spill had effects on sharks, but determining exactly what those effects are is very difficult. What we know from the data that we have, or what we suggest at least, is that when that spill occurred, that the sharks in the vicinity of that area simply left. And that's one of the benefits of being a highly migratory species. They have the ability to vacate an area when that area is under a stress like the oil spill. Now, more locally with the Bonacary Spillway, as you know, what that did was in incur a, a large slug of fresh water into the Mississippi Sound and the adjacent areas. And of course, many sharks simply can't tolerate those levels of fresh water. So they left as well. Now, was that bad for their populations? No, probably not. Um, but it did make them move out of a preferred habitat. So there are probably some consequences there. All right. Let's get a phone call in. And it's Mike who's calling in from Biloxi. Go ahead, Mike. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Good morning. I've enjoyed listening to the show today. I appreciate uh, the chance to call in. Uh, being on the coast, we love to snapper fish. And, uh, my wife, Sharon, team, we go out a lot. And uh, every now and then we'll have a problem where we get cut off. 
by sharks. And uh, my wife, she can be kind of feisty. She wants to kill them all. And I say, some of them are protected by the government. We can't just kill all these sharks. And I wish you'd uh, just give us a little tip about how we might uh, know the difference between the ones that are protected and all. Thank you much. I'll wait your response. All right, Mike, thanks for the call. Mike, that's a great question, and I appreciate exactly where you're coming from. I also like to snapper fish and have seen those sharks bite and cut off my line, and that is frustrating to say the least. Um, But the short answer is many of these sharks look very, very similar, which is also pretty frustrating. But a general rule of thumb is that the ridgebacks are protected by and large. And by ridgeback, I mean sharks that have a small raised ridge of skin running between their first and second dorsal fin. So we're talking about animals like dusky sharks, sandbar sharks, um, silky sharks, things like that. Other species like bull sharks um, are not protected. Things like tiger sharks in this part of the world are, are not protected under those same measures. But Management for sharks can, can be a little bit complicated. There are species that you can't touch at all, um, and then there are other species that are just uh, fine to harvest. So it's kind of a fine line at times. All right. Our, our last call of the hour, and it's Tina in Jackson. Good morning, Tina. Go ahead. Good morning. I'm calling about a, a pet. This okay. Is a pet question. I have a male cat that's between four and five months old. He was... Uh, found in the middle of the street as a like a, maybe a four-week-old kitten, uh, maybe younger than that because his mother was carrying him and dropped him. And I moved him to keep him from getting run over, and she wouldn't come back. So I took him home and raised him. But anyway, at this time, he's um he's mean. He um you can't hardly pet him unless he's in the mood. Because you're going to get slapped, and you're definitely going to get growled at. Can't hold him, and he runs like a speeding bullet from the time he comes out of his cage in the morning until night. And I do lock him up at night because we wouldn't get any sleep if I did. This, unfortunately, is one of the problems that we see with orphan kittens, uh, especially if they're raised by themselves. They never learn the give and take of roughhousing and uh, fighting between the siblings. And this carries over into the adult cat with usually a scratcher and a biter and uh, can be kind of severe. Uh, do you have another cat? I have three other cats. Yeah. But he was raised on a bottle? Or, no, he didn't um, He didn't have to have a bottle. Okay. He, was, he, but, he started eating. Right. But he probably had no siblings his age to interact with and we we see this quite often with orphan kittens uh they will bite uh even the owner or sometimes they will stalk a guest and run out and bite them and then uh vamoose after that uh i wish you luck it's going to be difficult to break that habit and uh if he's not neutered certainly he needs to be neutered that right i'm gonna i'm definitely gonna do that soon that may help some okay good luck to you Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, uh, All right, Tina, thanks for the call. And I would say my cat was a similar thing where he kind of got rescued. I think he was an abandoned by whoever had owned him at first, and he was very aggressive as a younger kitten, biting and scratching and that sort of thing. And as you mentioned, Dr. Major, guests were always on notice when he was around. But as he's gotten older, he seems to have gotten a little bit out of that. I think uh, as you play with them and interact with them as best you can, they kind of begin to learn you know, uh, where, the, uh, where the boundaries are. 
And certainly I would hope that her cat does the same as it gets older. Okay. All right. I've got a couple minutes left. Uh, Marcus, here's another shark question from an emailer saying, can one type of shark breed with another? Wow. Um, that's something that we're just now kind of figuring out. And the short answer is yes. So hybrid species, um, we suspect that there are examples of that that have been shown, uh, for instance, off the coast of Australia, where two very similar species of black tip shark have interbred uh, to create a hybrid species. Uh, but that's really only something that we've started thinking about here in the past uh, five to 10 years. So that's a really great question. All right. And I think we have a couple more shark myths here. Um, here's another one. Sharks are found uh, at the ocean, only at the ocean surface. Yeah, I would say if we're talking proportionally, most sharks are found away from the ocean surface. So benthic sharks or kind of near the bottom sharks or midwater column sharks. There are certainly some sharks that are at the surface that we think of as pelagic or surface dwelling sharks, things like basking sharks and whale sharks need to feed at the surface for example, but the vast majority of sharks are, are deep deep water sharks. And interestingly, that's the group of the sharks that we know the least about right now, just because they're so difficult to access. Okay. Uh, we are just about out of time. There is time, though, for me to remind you that uh, Marcus will be at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science on March 3rd, which is Tuesday at noon, I think, is when the lectures are. Yeah. And the title is The Gulf of Mexico Fisheries Through Time, Modern Approaches for Tracking Ancient Fishes. If you're in the Jackson area or listening to the show and didn't get your question answered, I'm sure Marcus would be able to talk to you then. But again, it's March 3rd at noon. That's a Tuesday at the museum. And looking forward to, uh, to that. So that is about going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show was produced today by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest, Dr. Marcus Dryman, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next at 10. It's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.